A fireman never wants to see a fire, but a fire gives them purpose. For me, I didn't shy away from problems at one of my businesses, because if there were no problems, my managers could run them just fine. I was the fireman. I was there to solve the problems that were unexpected, and I didn't consider them negatives as much as challenges. I wanted to find the best way to solve a problem, fix it so well it never recurred. And there's a sense of accomplishment when you do that. And when you feel that way about it, you look forward to every day as a new challenge. How can you leave something better than you found it each and every day? Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with the tenacious Las Vegas serial entrepreneur, US Marine and business visionary who has enjoyed riding the roller coaster of business and life. The author of the recently released book, Tenacity, began his career in the US Marine Corps before becoming a casino dealer, entrepreneur, realtor, board member across Las Vegas through to California. His life has been action-packed from the days of growing up in Brooklyn to coping with a barrage of constraints including political and police corruption, bribery, coercion, and even death threats. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a cancer survivor, wonderful storyteller, and tenacious grandparent of five grandchildren, Ron Curry. Ron, welcome to the show. Hello, Craig. Thank you so much for having me today. So you grew up in Brooklyn. You know, what was life like for you uh, as a child? You know, what's, what was your family life like and what did you dream of? I was fortunate to grow up in a very healthy family atmosphere, a mom and dad, a younger brother. Uh, my parents drove me to get a good education. And uh, it was a typical New York City street playing street games, all the things that one would see on TV in any big city in America today. Uh, except I found that continuing my higher education wasn't particularly suited for me. So after three semesters in college, I decided to join the Marine Corps. And after a couple of years of active duty, uh, that left me in the state of California, which put me so close to Las Vegas when I got done with active duty, I came to Las Vegas to seek my fortune. <laughs> to seeking fortune. So when you were a teenager, were you always kind of hustling? Did you have that entrepreneurial approach to, to life? I think I did because when I was around 12 years old, my dad gave me a shoe shine box so I could shine my black shoes before school every morning. And I took that shoe shine box an hour before school started to the corner subway stop and shine shoes for 10 cents a shine back in the late 1960s. And uh, I found that I really enjoyed making money on my own, thinking outside of the box. 
the group of friends I grew up with as a teen started a band. I didn't play an instrument, so I determined I'd be the manager. And we actually made money uh, selling tickets to shows and renting halls and selling beverages, snacks, and admission fees. So I really enjoyed making things happen and earning money. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, I went to work as a casino dealer to get a foothold in Las Vegas, became a realtor after a couple of years, sold real estate during the day, which is sort of like being in business for yourself, and dealt in the casino business until 1979 when I purchased my first tavern. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very full on and, you know, you've, you had that kind of that grasp for for money and, and how you could you know, make a deal and things like that as well. So what drew you to the U.S. Marine Corps? You know, what was what was that kind of reason for going in there? Obviously, you said you were finding it a bit difficult with academics, but what, what drew you to the Marine Corps? Well, I just wasn't enjoying attending college. And at the time, the United States had a draft with the Vietnam War going on. If you maintained at least 12 credits in college, you were deferred from the draft. I always enrolled in at least 12 credits. But what I didn't realize was if during the middle of a semester, I dropped a class that I was not enjoying, that that would inactivate my deferment. And I ended up with the draft into the military. And because at the time, anyone who was drafted was going to Vietnam. And many of the people in my neighborhood in Brooklyn that went were coming back without limbs or, or deceased. I decided rather than being drafted into a random branch, I went into the Marine Corps because of their history of very intense training thinking I would enhance the likelihood that I could survive war. However, by the time I was done with my training in the Marine Corps, the Vietnam War had started to de-escalate and we didn't get sent over. So we ended up staying stateside and ended up with a civilian career when my active duty term was over. And so did you have, who, who was your, you know, sort of greatest influence during those, your early years of life and, and even the Marine Corps? Was there someone that really stood out as someone who had a great impact on who you are as a human being? You know, this, this might sound odd. I didn't know the man, but there was a movie star named John Wayne. Growing up as a child, I enjoyed John Wayne movies, whether they were war movies or westerns. But I read about him, and he was a very loyal friend to his friends in Hollywood. Uh, he, he seemed to be a real good guy, a patriot, someone you could admire. And I even speak about him in my book, Tenacity, in, in a way that he was the embodiment of what one could hope to be as an adult. And I found him to be a bit of an inspiration, as well as my father who worked many jobs providing for our family and was a very good role model for me. And so coming out of the Marine Corps, you moved to California and then into Las Vegas. And what was, 
what was drawing you to Las Vegas? You know, there's the big bright lights, big cities, you know, lots of growth. Was there something in particular that kind of caught your attention? Well, I didn't move to California. The Marine Corps stationed me there. And the base that I was stationed on was a short two hour drive on the highway to Las Vegas. So I ended up with a traditional Monday to Friday type job on base and would come to Las Vegas on weekends. Uh, it was nothing like the desert town I was based in. So there was activity, there were shows, the lounge shows when you didn't make a lot of money, you could walk through a casino and in an open air lounge, listen to entertainment. Uh, so it was a very inexpensive way to enjoy weekends off. And I found Las Vegas to be a young, vibrant town of only a couple of hundred thousand people back then. And I thought there might be great opportunity here where I could start my civilian career as a casino dealer and decide where to go from there. I always hoped to go into business for myself when I could put together enough assets to do that. And then the search for five years of dealing was what business could I get into that whatever skill set I had would lend itself to. As I said, I didn't stay in college, so I didn't have the ability to become an architect or a doctor or a lawyer. So uh, going into the tavern business seemed something that the military training suited me for, for keeping the peace and operating a tavern, much like the, the TV show Cheers. If you operate a safe, friendly place and you can get enough people to come in, you could be successful. And I parlayed that one first tavern venture into four neighborhood casinos and 16 other businesses, including a limousine service, a printing company, a wholesale glass and mirror company, a car wash, and seven car dealerships in Las Vegas and California. Uh, that's quite an achievement, and we'll delve into some of those entrepreneurial journeys shortly. I, I want to go back to your days and your early days as a casino dealer. And obviously, when you're working in the casinos, there's many walks of life that come through there. You get a real art for human behavior and communication. Did that really help you when you came into owning your own businesses that, you know, their ability to see body language and understand people in the casino? It was actually quite ideal as a segue into the tavern business, because if you could picture, now I dealt all the games, I opted to learn them to enhance the likelihood that I would not be laid off at a slow period. I wanted to be a more valuable employee. So unlike many dealers who only learn blackjack or dice or roulette, I learned them all. I dealt Baccarat, Blackjack, Roulette, and Craps, and uh, worked at the Tropicana Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. And by dealing on a table, you're encountering everyone from someone who might be betting his last $5 to a celebrity. I dealt to Hollywood actors like Telly Savalas, Lee Majors, Farrah Fawcett, uh, worked with Louis Prima, a very famous singer who worked in the lounge at the Tropicana. And you would interact with people on the games who wanted to engage with their dealer. And you had no knowledge of who they were, where they came from. And you'd have to encounter much as you would in a tavern 
when you have 50 or 60 customers walking in and you'd want to meet them, greet them and engage in a conversation when you have nothing to base that conversation on. So it was a terrific training ground for me to go into the tavern business. So what do you think makes up a great dealer? You know, what um, characteristics do you need to be a high performing casino dealer? Well, you need to develop a proficiency with your hands, whether you're handling the cards or the chips on a roulette table, you need to be good with numbers so that you can deal with the money effectively, quickly, and get more hands out or more rolls out because that's what the house is looking for. And you need to be personable. So people want to be at your table and will gamble their dollars with you. So that human connection is so important in, in, in the work that you do and in life. And, and so going into the tavern there, you, you, your first sort of purchase of a business, you know, will you, will you, it's, probably, it's going back a few years now, but what sort of things were you dealing with internally around, can I actually, you know, run my own business? Was there some doubt there or did you just feel really confident that you knew what you were going, you knew what you were going to be doing? Well, I have to credit the Marine Corps for instilling in me a mentality that nothing was beyond my grasp, a failure to accept or, or a refusal to accept failure. So when I went into the tavern business, I knew I had a lot to learn. There was the back end part of the business where I had to self-teach myself going in in the morning, doing the banking business, uh, simple things like throughout the night, a bartender could take in a lot of checks and hundred dollar bills, which is not usable currency. So every morning you had to go in and, and take the unusable currencies, go to the bank, get them ones, fives, tens, and twenties so they could conduct business the next day, do your ordering, replace the liquor and food products that got used up on the prior shift, uh, stock up for the day. And then as soon as you had the back office work done, be present out front. I was never a bartender. I was more like a host. I was a meter and a greeter. I would play pool with customers. I would try to make sure that the, the service level was what I wanted from my people, from my servers and bartenders and make people feel like they were at their home away from home, make them want to come back, have them bring friends in. I found it to be a great benefit to my business to, to start a tickler file where I would make notes on index cards of the little unique peculiarities of each customer, whether he was bragging about his son's little league team or his daughter's ballet class or what he did for a living. So that when I put that index card in my file in my office and that customer shows up a week later and here he would be greeted at the entrance by the owner and the owner would have remembered his name, which my memory wasn't good enough to remember hundreds of people that I just met. So when they were immediately recognized, they'd want to come in with friends because they knew they'd be meted and greeted by name. And it would look like the owner of the establishment was interested in them. He'd ask, how's your son Bobby doing? Did they play ball this week? The things that the customers would think that I remembered about them gave the place a very personal feel and helped them 
become my marketers. They would bring friends and family in to enjoy my facility, spend money, and by making them feel recognized and valued, I actually grew that business into one of the most popular night spots in Las Vegas. It sounds like the ultimate analog customer relationship management <laughs> system. You know, so we have CRMs now, but you were doing that in an analog version, and you, that's a it's a fantastic thing to to understand really quickly is that the importance of knowing the person and the power of the human connection and how that can be your greatest marketing asset uh, for your tavern. So yeah, impressive. Sure. To turn your customers into your own salespeople as they're spending their money with you is an ultimate coup for anyone in business. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, and so, you know, how you, you had different restaurants and gaming bars during that time, you know, for, for you setting up those businesses, were there many hurdles back then around how you could actually um, set up a business in Las Vegas and, and how and what sort of processes you needed to go through? Were they always above the line? Well, because the local tavern business in Las Vegas is quite unique compared to any other city, because we also are allowed to engage in gaming with uh, poker machines, you need to qualify for a liquor and a gaming license from the city you're in, as well as from the state of Nevada. And those are not easy to get. You need to toe the line, not uh, clearly not be a criminal, but you could be denied a gaming license even if you had the bad personal practice of bouncing personal checks. I wouldn't call these hurdles as long as you lived your life properly. But in one case, in an adjacent jurisdiction to Las Vegas that my book describes in detail, I purchased a piece of property that had the use permit zoning for non-restricted gaming, which wouldn't limit me to the typical 15 slot machines as most taverns in Las Vegas. You could put in all the gaming you wanted. So I purchased a half acre in this city next to Vegas for $270,000 in 1988, which was a big number back then to me, and planned a very large facility I would construct on it. Little did I know at the time that one of the city councilmen in the city uh, was a competitor of mine in the graphics business and planned on being a competitor in the tavern business. And he used his power as a councilman and his rule over his small town police department to actually frame me in a series of criminal charges to try to do away with me as a competitor. And my book goes into great, great detail as to what he put me through, how I overcame it, and how I provided him some very justifiable payback for the couple of years that he put me through and how I ultimately prevailed against him and built my neighborhood casino. Oh, so you're starting to spark some curiosity in my mind. So are you able to share one of those instances where, um, the, you know, in where they have actually put you, you know, what, what were they framing you for? There was an employee that we caught stealing. He was a waiter who was converting K-12 
cash checks in my dining room to his own revenue by voiding items off the, the tab after he collected from the customer. We caught him doing it. And as we started the prosecution against him, the councilman told him if he would point a finger at me claiming he didn't do anything wrong and I beat a false confession out of him, they would give him a pass on his crime and come after me. I got that confession from him through a private investigator who went undercover and befriended him. In another case, the police captain that he used to come after me actually said to a witness that was standing up for me that he found something that witness did in his past and he would pursue him for that if he, unless he would point a finger at me. And the witness said, I can't point a finger at him. He didn't do anything wrong. And we later proved all that was going on and cleared my good name. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing what tactics people will go to to try and get a one-up or, or get a competitive advantage. It is a rarity, but I was shocked that it happened. And uh, as I said earlier, I had a mentality that I would not take an easy way out. I would not accept failure easily. And when you're defending your good name and your freedom and trying to build a life and a family, uh, sometimes even fighting City Hall is necessary. And I know that there's an old adage, you can't fight City Hall. But my book will walk people through chapters of how you do fight City Hall and prevail sometimes. So I'm curious here when I look at the different types of businesses you had from car dealerships to casino, um, sorry, restaurant and gaming rooms to graphic design, glass companies, realty. When you went into a business, was it about purely about the money? Was it about leading people? Was it a passion? What drew you to the different types of businesses? You know, Craig, I don't think it was ever the money. Uh, the money was a side benefit. I love the challenge, which is why I didn't just stay in one industry. I wanted to do something new. I, I term myself in my book, an observational entrepreneur or a niche finder. In a small town like Las Vegas back decades ago, you could come up with an idea that someone hadn't done before, or you might think you can do it better than someone else was doing it. And when you find that niche and you figure out a way to perform it yourself, there's a great sense of accomplishment. Whether the revenue return is great, in some cases it was absolutely astronomical, uh, such as engaging in gaming and being in the new car sales business as a Hyundai, Chevrolet, Cadillac, and Kia dealer. Uh, but it wasn't always the money. It was just the sense of taking on a new challenge, managing hundreds of people, trying to do it well, helping people build their own lives by, by providing them employment benefits and the chance to raise their own family and be thankful to you for giving them the opportunity it's all very rewarding, and I thoroughly enjoyed it so much that I just kept doing it. So when you look back at your career as an entrepreneur, 
What do you think was your greatest challenge uh, as a business owner? What, what was the thing you found the most challenging throughout that whole time that you always had to try and overcome? Well, for that couple of year period, when you've got a city gunning for you, when all you're trying to do is open and operate a business in competition with hundreds of other taverns in the valley, uh, having a corrupt city councilman who could power empower himself with a corrupt police department, that was the single greatest challenge in my business career. I ultimately, at the age of 53, and despite the fact I never smoked in my life, but I did take in a lot of secondhand smoke from the casino business and the tavern business, developed esophageal cancer, which only has an 8% survival rate. The surgery was 11 hours long. It was quite debilitating. And on a personal level, that was the second greatest challenge I've ever had to deal with. And then today, I am actually 15 years cancer-free without an esophagus, having lost half my stomach. But I am proud to say I beat cancer thanks to being in great shape, surviving the surgery, and uh, maintaining a positive attitude. Uh, and, and early detection is also a major key. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. It's uh... You know, it is one of those cancers that is, you know, as you say, has a quite a high mortality rate. And uh, for you to overcome that, you know, it's that real tenacious drive that you have and, and just a belief that you can overcome anything, uh, which is obviously very, um, which, which shows through all your business ventures that you have done so far as well. Yes, thank you. Uh, something I didn't touch on. When I went to open a limousine company here, it was because I found that the local limousine companies in 1984 were nothing but glorified taxi cabs. So I thought I could do something better than was being done. I purchased four stretch limousines, not the standard airport type run car, but a full stretch. I put my chauffeurs in tuxedos did things to make our company presidential limousine service stand out and found that by daring to go into the transportation business, the local companies would engage in vandalism of my cars, death threats to me, and found bullet holes in my cars that once I determined who I thought the culprit was, my book goes into some detail and how rather than back down and just not pursue the business venture, I confronted it head on and overcame that challenge. Yeah, it's a, that, that's interesting in itself. You know, when you've got death threats, you've got people who are firing bullets and you stand up and confront them. You know, what's the biggest lesson there for, you know, our listeners around that? You know, obviously most people would, would shy away from something so dangerous <laughs> like that. Well, if you have the intestinal fortitude to become an entrepreneur, don't cower to bullies. Someone will always be out there to try to take something away from you that you're entitled to. And they will count on you not wanting to fight. I don't necessarily mean fisticuffs, but to fight legislatively, politically, whatever it takes. But if you stand up to a bully, quite often that bully will back down because they're not in the habit of being stood up to. And when you turn it around, 
and make them aware that whatever happens to you, if they try to pursue you physically, you've made arrangements for worse to happen to them and theirs. Oftentimes they run scared and you will prevail. So you need persistence, determination, and that's the reason I called my book Tenacity. If you're tenacious, you will find that more often than not, you will prevail when those undoubted challenges come your way. Going back to, you talked, talked about a lot about human connection and really getting to know your, um, your clients and, and the people, your consumers that were coming into your different businesses. As a leader, what would you describe as your greatest leadership strengths? I like to operate my businesses in a way that all my employees knew I was approachable. I would go out of my way as I entered one of my businesses to say hello to everyone that I had the time to talk to and just say, how are you doing? How's it going? What kind of job am I doing as an owner? What can I do to make your job better? Because the better you perform, the better our business will be. So whether it was a person in one of my companies that was at the lowest end of the totem pole or one of my managers, they all knew that I was approachable. Whether it was a porter in a car dealership or a salesman or a sales manager or a service employee, if they had a problem, they knew they could come to me. And I wanted to always be approachable. And I think that is the key to your business being successful. Yeah, approachable is so important. So all your businesses were in physical locations. Do you think now with so much business online, whether that would have been attractive to you to, to run businesses online? Or do you think that it your your whole personality just suited to be in front of customers face-to-face -face, um, at all times? Well, I think anyone in business for themselves need to be prepared to adapt and improvise. When I was in business, it was very hands-on. There were no computers. There weren't even cell phones in the early days. So for me to lay out a plan on a piece of graph paper was not uncommon. But as technology has evolved, uh, online presence is critical. In fact, I'm currently in a new business venture with uh, internationally known tennis champion, Andre Agassi. It's a learning tool that is uh, a playset product called Square Panda, but it's also a digital product. And we have a great online presence and we are teaching children from the ages of two through eight, how to spell and read, how to learn English in India and China and, uh, I'm actually doing exactly what you just asked. I am adapting to the new age and doing things that enable me to continue growing and being challenged in business. Adaptability is, is one of the key kind of unique identifiers of successful people. And so, yeah, it's great to hear that you're doing and, and working with people. You've had a lot of business partners through your business and you talked about Andre Agassi there as well. Did you ever own anything by yourself or you were, or you always went into business with someone else and why did you do that? Well, when I was in the Marine Corps, I palled up with a buddy in boot camp. We got stationed together 
at our first duty station. And he was from a city much like Brooklyn called Philadelphia. And he grew up in the same type of uh, environment as me. So we had a lot in common. He and I got out of the service at the same time, moved to Vegas, were roommates, and we were business partners from the beginning in our first six businesses. So it just kind of fell naturally that my buddy Dan and I, whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to invite him to join me. He was a loyal, good and honest friend. And if I achieved any level of success, I wanted him to join me in that area. So. Uh, that's sort of how I started out. So by default, I would say, and I liked having a business partner that could carry the ball for me. If I wanted to take a week off and go away, someone I could trust to continue in my shoes running the business. Yeah. Good approach. And you know, it's always good to have someone to rely on to when it gets, when things get difficult to just have discussions about and, and brainstorm and work through things. Which is a great uh, insight. If you were to go into a university and spend some time with kind of the next generation of um, entrepreneurs, what would be three things that you would advise them not to do? Well, I'd say there's a term that I've repeated to many people when they ask me for advice. And it is that there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Throughout life, in business and in life, people are confronted with choices. And sometimes the easy way isn't the right way. So I have found great success by building a reputation in Las Vegas for being a loyal, honest, and reliable person. And the only way you do that is by making the right choices when difficult choices confront you. Sometimes your choice will not make you the most money, but it will be the right thing to do by treating people fairly. So uh, avoid being disloyal, dishonest, and unreliable. You live your life that way, you will find success in whatever you pursue. Very good. I like that. Great advice there. For you, You've talked about a very busy life and, and obviously being Vegas, you know, working in Vegas where everything seems to, well, from my perspective, from the, the visuals that we see that a lot of things happen at night. So it's a big nightlife um, area and obviously work happens during the day. How did you find time for your family and grandchildren with so many businesses and just, you know, for you, I can really feel you being that passionately there for the clients all the time. Well, you have to, you have to work hard to make time for everything that's important to you. When, uh, when I moved to Las Vegas, I met a girl, I started dating her. And after a couple of years, we got married. Three years later, we had our first child. And even though I was starting to raise a family, even though I was by day a realtor and by night a tavern operator, I made it a point, just as my dad raised me, to be home for dinner with the family every night. I would leave the tavern, 
and I would tell them I'll be back in a couple of hours. And when my wife planned on having dinner on the table at 5.30, I would be home. I would gather the kids around the table. I'd ask them about their day. I'd answer questions for them about my day. And we would spend an hour or two together every night. I always tried to take one day off a week and spend the entire day with them and take them to do something fun for them so they'd have something to look forward to, just as my dad did with me. And I persistently always made time for not just business, but for family. Uh, it's really important. And I think it's so easy to get preoccupied with, uh, you know, with your work and forget the importance of family and that time together and, you know, really, really ensuring that you've planned it out and it just doesn't just happen by chance, oh, which is really good. The book Tenacity, you, what was the reason for you for writing the book? And what was the, you know, for you, what did you learn the most about yourself as you went through that reflection of writing um, through all the, the many interesting stories and uh, parts of your life? Well, in 2015, <clears throat> I sold all my car dealership interests. I had sold all my other business interests. And after being in business for myself for 40 years, I suddenly found myself, while very well taken care of financially, somewhat irrelevant. I no longer had multiple businesses to manage or employees to oversee. And I had to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life because retirement wasn't for me. I needed a mission. I needed a project. And even though I got into enjoying recreational poker at the local poker rooms, it, it wasn't enjoyable to do that every day. So as I pondered, what did I want to do in, in 2016, I thought some of the experiences I had in business were quite interesting to many of the people I would meet in the poker rooms. And I thought this is a story worth telling, not only to leave a legacy for my children, to know exactly what it was like, but uh, to possibly motivate and inspire people to uh, understand exactly what I encountered, maybe learn from it, and to tell my story. So I sat down for two years and wrote my book, got it published. And uh, one of the interesting things that happened is I learned from a book consultant I put on my team that over 25% of all books sold today are, are sold in audio, audio book form. So I hired a Hollywood actor with a very familiar voice named Michael Madsen, who made Reservoir Dogs and Donnie Brasco, two notable movies, to be the voice of tenacity. And uh, if any of your listeners go to Amazon or go to my website for my book, ronquarryauthor.com, they can order the book as a paperback, hardcover, or the audio book with Michael Madsen reading the entire book to them on their computer or cell phone. Yeah, brilliant. So for you, you know, you talked about working during the day, working during the night, spending time with family. How did you ensure that you turned up each day with 
the energy, the passion and performance so you could deliver your best every day? I think it came naturally because I, I had a, in me a refusal to fail attitude. And every day was a new challenge. You know, uh, a, a fireman never wants to see a fire, but a fire gives them purpose. For me, I didn't shy away from problems at one of my businesses because if there were no problems, my managers could run them just fine. I was the fireman. I was there to solve the problems that were unexpected. And I didn't consider them negatives as much as challenges. I wanted to find the best way to solve a problem, fix it so well it never recurred. And there's a sense of accomplishment when you do that. And when you feel that way about it, you look forward to every day as a new challenge. How can you leave something better than you found it each and every day? That's mm, a good legacy. Very nice. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, as far as something as a business uh, for the first time, when a buddy of mine, uh, we knew each other socially, he lived in Texas, uh, moved to Las Vegas, he was a car dealer. And he was interested in learning the gaming business from me. So we looked at purchasing a hotel casino. Uh, nothing within our price point was available and the things that were in our price point needed too much work. So we shifted strategies and he said, well, since we didn't find the gaming property to buy, what do you think about learning the car business? And I said, I've always enjoyed a new challenge. Uh, so we found the car dealership that it had been doing well in past years, but had been struggling. We purchased it at the right price. We jumped in with both feet, applied the business sense we both had developed in our business careers. And that was something new to me. I had never thought I'd be a car dealer, never thought I'd be in the car business, but I found it to be very rewarding financially. And we grew that one dealership into six dealerships. Oh, very good. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Well, currently, our world is facing so much strife, and our country in particular is suffering from a great deal of political partisanship. It's troubling to me that I've lived through decades of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, past legislators used to work together to do whatever was best for the country. But we are so divided right now. I would say the biggest problem I wish could be solved is for the people that run our nation to work better together and create more harmony because the civil strife and the political partisanship that we are dealing with in America is tearing us apart. And the world will be a better place if America is a stronger and happier place. Mm, good insight. 
for you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Oh, it's very simple. Uh, being financially secure, feeling like you've, you've been there for your family and for your friends when they need you in times of trouble and, and just uh, being a good person and a good parent is very rewarding and no one could hope to accomplish more in their lives. Yeah, very nice. Ron, how can people learn more about what you do? So you talked about the, the book website, so you can maybe repeat that one. But what is the best yeah. way for people to connect with you as well? Well, uh, they will need to spell my name correctly. So it's roncoreyauthor.com. Corey is spelled C-O-U-R-Y. And through the website, there's a way to contact the author. And there's a quick link to purchase the book on Amazon. So going to roncoreyauthor.com is the best way to research the book before you buy it or to reach out to me. Brilliant. So we'll put those links in the show notes so people can connect with you. Ron, thank you very much for you know, an engaging conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking about your, your life growing up in Brooklyn, um, the, the reasons you went into the U.S. Marine Corps, finding your feet as an entrepreneur, the lessons you learned from being a dealer in the gaming industry, to overcoming so many adversities, that real tenacious way of leading your life where any obstacle you confronted it rather than hiding from it. And you took the bull by the horn, so to speak, with life and just gave it your best shot every single time. You know, just, you know, for, for me, just listening to the way that you would approach a business and it was, it was all about the challenge. It wasn't about the money. It was all about the challenge and how could you make people more um, happier in their life, right? You could, you could feel that real sense of connection and wanting to make a difference in people's lives so they just felt like being part of your family, so to speak. And so I just want to acknowledge you for the amazing work you have done in changing people's lives and, and making it better for people and all while being going through kind of what was what might feel like the wild west but you kept your honesty and loyalty and just made sure that you are a respectful person um, in in a world where you know if i look at las vegas has grown so much and so fast over the last few decades uh, with all its beauty and wonder and craziness that it has there um, so congratulations on the book and um, thank you so much for your time today Well, thank you, Craig. You've been a wonderful interviewer, and I truly hope your listeners uh, find my book enjoyable and inspirational, and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you for listening to an amazing conversation with Ron Curry, tenacious Las Vegas entrepreneur on the Active CEO podcast. Don't let Crisis confuse your life experiences with your life purpose. You know, it's really easy to get consumed in this uncertainty and when things seem to be all going wrong and everything's against you, to forget about your purpose in life and to give up on it. 
There are many life experiences that challenge us in ways that we feel like life is so difficult. And we, can, we, we let that cloud our judgment on the decisions we make. And we base them on emotion rather than evidence or, or our understanding of what we are doing in life. So make sure that you base your decisions on evidence that backs your ability to achieve your life purpose and follow your mission and vision in life rather than folding to emotion of the experiences that are incurring in your life. No one has the perfect life. There are always ups and downs. And your job as a leader is to step up and ensure that you have connection and that you are still focused on your life purpose rather than what you're experiencing right now. To do that, so important to have absolute clarity on your vision and mission in life. If you're struggling to identify what your life purpose is, or you find you're always getting caught up in your life experiences, then please contact me and we can have a discussion around and help you uncover some clarity around where you're heading in life and what your mission is. So please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.